All right. Well, we are um, going to turn our attention to God's Word in the book of Colossians, where we've been the last few weeks. Actually, we're finishing up Colossians just in the next couple of weeks. So we will be done next week, uh, but we get to dig into some really great stuff still for the next couple of weeks. It is it's hard to believe, isn't it, that like Thanksgiving is just around the corner and that Christmas is just around the corner from that and that the new year. And maybe some of you have just been praying really hard, uh, Lord, please let let 2021 go away as soon as possible. Uh, so your prayers are being answered. We're, we're moving quickly toward, toward the new year. Uh, before we start, let me pray for us. Father, we do uh, thank you for gathering us here today. We ask, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that you would turn our attention to Jesus, that you would remove the obstacles even of seeing what you have to say to us. You would open our eyes where we need to see, maybe where we need to see our own failings. You would open our ears where we need to hear the beautiful truth of your gospel. And that, Lord, we would see Jesus more clearly today. And in seeing him, might love him, might obey him, might follow him. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Okay, we are in toward the end of chapter 3 in Colossians. I'm reading here verse 18 of chapter 3, and I'll read through the very first verse of chapter 4. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and because he wants us to know him. I'm going to show you uh, an equation up here right now. If anybody uh, knows what this equation is, then you, um, you know a lot more than me. Raise, raise your hand if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, a lot of people smarter than me. Uh, so this is the Newtonian equation for gravity. This is how gravity works. And if you are a physicist or, you know, physicist adjacent, as the folks who raise their hands are, uh, then, you know, you're probably accustomed to being in groups of people or a classroom where you are discussing theories like this. Where you're discussing, you know, how you might plug in different, I don't even know how you can have an equation that doesn't have numbers in it, but how you can plug in different things, you know, for all of the letters in this equation. And you're theorizing all of this. Now, if I was in such a class, I would be A, my brain would be running overtime, trying to figure out a way to keep up. But I would probably also want to ask a very important question here, and that would be, can you give me an example in which case, maybe the professor would do something like this. There it is. There's the example of gravity. When I drop something, it falls. That's really what I need to know about it. 
Well, Paul really has kind of been giving us an equation for how life is supposed to work in the kingdom of God. Having been raised with Christ, having been one who is now clothed in his righteousness, having been put, put to death the deeds of the body, having been made a member of God's kingdom, having been united with Jesus, now what does life look like lived in his kingdom? And he now gives us an analogy. He gives us an example. He goes to the very nitty-gritty of basic family life and says, okay, here's how it works. If you want an example of what it means, as he says in verse 17, which is really kind of the governing verse for all of this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you want an example of what it means to do everything in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus, let's start with the nitty and the grittiest of all human relationships. Let's start in the family. And so he goes through actually three kind of familial, relational roles to explain to us what it looks like to live out these kingdom of God values. Husband and wife, parents and children, and masters and bondservants, and I'll explain a little bit more about how that's a family thing in just a minute. But in order to, to get a better grip on this, I want to look at four kind of quick questions or four things that this passage is about. And I'm going to try to be pretty quick this morning so we can get on to our congregational meeting. But four things I want to look at in this passage today, and that is that it is about role. It is about some surprising roles it's about your role, and it's about the Lord. Let me do that again for if, you, if you want to write them down uh, for you who would like to take notes. This passage is about role. It's about surprising roles. It's about your role, and it's about the Lord. So let's dive into those now. First of all, what do I mean by it's about role? Well, God is actually talking about particular roles in the family structure here. And we need to make sure that we have this, we have our heads on straight in this, or we're going to completely misunderstand this passage. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It is not, therefore, about gender. Paul does not say, women, submit to men, and men, love women. Nor does he say, it's about class. He does not say, okay, younger people obey older people, and older people try not to exasperate the younger people. And he doesn't say, you know, masters and slaves, here's the way it goes because it's about class and we need to keep things all ordered kind of as far as classes go. It is not about gender, it is not about class, and it's not about value either. This is not to give us some sort of hierarchy of equality or value or personhood. In fact, we have gotten this messed up, I think, before in the church, either because what we have said that's not true or because what we have heard that's not being said, we have somehow ended up in a place where we think, okay, this kind of gives us a hierarchy of how men and women are supposed to relate to each other in the breadth of all culture, and it gives us kind of some sort of understanding of who's more valuable, who's more important, who has kind of a greater personhood. That is not true. That is not what Paul is saying. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, even if you look at the one where you, that you might be the most prone to think that it's about kind of value in this master and slave or bondservant relationship, it is interesting, isn't it, that Paul is actually addressing 
the slaves. He mentions them as particular people. He actually affirms their personhood in doing so. In fact, this letter to the church probably would have been uh, given, would have been delivered by a guy named Onesimus, who was himself a slave. Paul would have given him actually the honor of delivering this letter that's going to end up being canonized into Scripture to the church, and he's giving that honor to somebody who is a bondservant here. So it's not about gender, it's not about class, it's not about value, it is about role. What is the role that you have been called to in this particular relationship of the family? It's actually interesting to see even where sometimes these roles can overlap. It is totally possible, totally reasonable to believe that bond servants here Slaves actually could have been members of the church. Well, we know that they were members of the church, but actually that they could have even been elders in the church and therefore held authority over their masters in that role. It's not about value. It's about role. Now, let me just say something about that relationship, master and slave. Sometimes we read that in the Bible and it can kind of freak us out because we look at it with particular lenses. Uh, the, the way that the way that slavery worked in the first century Greco-Roman world is probably different than the way that we have the conception of slavery being work, working. It is different than 18th, 19th century Western world slavery for a few reasons. One, it was not racially based. Uh, two, slaves uh, had a lot more kind of freedom, kind of upward mobility in their lives. They could own property. They could run for office. They could be highly educated. In fact, very oftentimes the tutor that lived in the household that would actually train all the children of the household uh, was a bondservant, was a household slave, and was probably the most educated person in the household. So while it still was the ownership of people, and we don't want to forget that, there are some differences in the way that we typically understand slavery and the way that slavery was practiced here in the first century. Now, I say that mainly to tell you that I think there is actually a pretty decent overlap in how we can apply this today. Because we come to a passage like this, sometimes we can think, okay, yeah, husbands and wives, we get that. Parents and children, we get that. Maybe we should just throw away this whole talk of bond servants and masters. But I don't think we can because I think there's a parallel for us. It's not one-to-one, -one, but there is a parallel in the way that employers and employees should act with one another. So just think about it in terms of that this morning as we're having this discussion. What does it mean to be in the role of employer or employee and how is God calling me in that role? So that's the first thing that we need to know is that this is about role. It is not about gender or class or equality. It is about role. Secondly, this is about really what would have been some very surprising roles. This discussion, these roles that Paul lays out here, would have been very scandalous in the first century. In fact, uh, talks about kind of how a household is supposed to work, that was not scandalous. That actually would have happened, you know, probably quite often. Aristotle kind of had a very similar sort of layout for how things were supposed to work in the family with a couple of big exceptions. In the Greek household, the, the, the male, the father, was called the paterfamilias. 
He was the one who was in charge of all. He was the one who was overseeing all. He was the one who was the head of the family. And probably they would have read it something like this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your fathers. Bondservants, obey in completeness your masters. Because the paterfamilias is the one who's in charge and he's going to order things so that they will be perfectly ordered in society and nothing falls apart because this family structure is so important. But isn't it scandalous what Paul actually says about the husband, about the father? In a time when not only the husband would have had the freedom to, but really been encouraged in many ways to act like a tyrant, What God actually says to husbands is, love your wives. Do not treat them harshly. In a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, he takes it a step further and he says, husbands, love your wives like Jesus has loved the church, laying his life down for her. And then fathers and parents, love your children such that you don't exasperate them. And then masters, love your slaves, your bondservants, such that you actually treat them justly and fairly. You know, this is what the gospel actually always does. The gospel always comes into a culture, and it challenges that culture. See, Paul is actually coming into the very structure of the basics, the fabric, really, of the family, of society there. And he's coming in as it is, as it is laid out. He is not saying, you know, we're not even going to talk about slavery because that's wrong. He's actually addressing what's there, but did you see this? He's addressing what's there, and then the gospel totally and radically challenges everything about it. That's what the gospel always does. It comes into a culture, is embedded in that culture, and then radically challenges everything in that culture. So that Christians are called to live countercultural lives completely. Now, of course, we live in a culture in which the way that we understand family sometimes is even just the opposite. But friends, the gospel challenges our understanding of these roles as well, doesn't it? The gospel always comes in and embeds in a culture and challenges that culture. So let me just kind of ask you, where are you being challenged? Where is our culture being challenged by this kind of discussion that God's word is having with us this morning? Where is your own heart being challenged here? Where is your role being challenged? Which really leads me to the third kind of point, which is not only this is about role and surprising roles, but it's about your role. Here's what I mean by that. When we read passages of scripture like this, it can be so tempting to look at everybody else's part and to think, well, if everybody else were kind of doing their part better, my part would be much easier. The truth is when we open up passages of scripture like this, we need to find our place in it and then pretend like everything else is written in Chinese, unless you read Chinese, and then pretend like it's written in hieroglyphics or something. Because it's really, in many ways, not even helpful to read. Men, do not take your Bible and highlight, wives, submit to your own husbands, and then just kind of leave your Bible open, you know, hoping your wife might walk by and see it, that will not get you anywhere good. Children, it is not for you to say, 
yeah, but mom and dad, see, God's word says you're not supposed to discourage me, and I'm feeling so discouraged when you tell me that I have to turn the Xbox off and I can't have any more screen time, and so you're disobeying God's word here, mom and dad. That's not what this is for. How about this one? Again, we have said that oftentimes this discussion about bond servants and masters, we can kind of take that to understand it in a discussion that is similar to, at least, employees and employers. So if you are an employee, what God says here is that your job as an employee is to work heartily. That word actually is even kind of not as much about heart as it is about like gut, like work from the gut, work with gusto. Do all that you do completely and fully with gusto as if you are working for God. I love what uh, Martin Luther King actually says about this. He says, it fall, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. I love that quote. No matter what it is you are called to, Work at it with all of your heart. Do it to the best of your possible ability. Yeah, but what if I have a really terrible boss? Does that change things? What if my boss is not really nice to me? What if it feels unjust or unfair? What if it feels like kind of I can't really get on board with the rules of the organization or it just feels like I don't like the culture here? Well, we live in a time and a place in which you do have the ability to go look for another job. So take that ability if you want. But while you are in your job, do not let the nature of your boss determine the nature of your work. Work hard. Because as Paul says, that's not really the person you're working for anyway. It's Jesus who you are working for. So do it with all that you have. If you are a student Study with all that you have. If you are a mother, love your children with all that you have. If you are a lawyer, work to the very letter of the law in the best way you can for your clients. If you are a teacher, dig in and teach to the best of your possible ability. If you are a street sweeper, sweep it like Michelangelo painted pictures. Work with gusto. All right, let's look at the fourth thing. It's about your role. It's about surprising roles, it's about your role, and then it's also and finally about the Lord. Verse 24 is so helpful for us here. Listen to this again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So good, such a good question to ask ourselves. Who are we serving? In my role as husband or wife or parent or worker or employer, who is it that I really serve? And I think one of the reasons why Paul actually dives into this particular nitty-gritty of life is because so oftentimes right here in the midst of this discussion of family life is the easiest place for us to actually see what it is we really want, who it is we really serve. Because there is that struggle there is that fear, well, if I do this, then, then maybe I won't get this other thing. 
if I love my wife to that kind of extent, then maybe I won't actually gain that kind of control over her that I would really like. If I don't exasperate my children or disappoint them, then really maybe they won't do everything that I've always wanted them to do or perform the way that I've always wanted them to perform. If I treat my employees with justice and equity, then maybe my bottom line will plummet. What do I do then? And this is where Jesus is calling us to some really difficult things. To be able to come to him and say, you have to be number one in my heart at all times. And so he's saying, wives, power cannot be number one for you. Number one has to be Jesus. And husbands, control cannot be number one for you. Number one has to be Jesus. And children, your autonomy cannot be number one for you. Number one has to be Jesus. And parents, authority cannot be number one for you. Number one has to be Jesus. And employees, your own ability and freedom in the world cannot be number one for you. Number one has to be Jesus. And employers, your bottom line cannot be number one for you. Number one has to be Jesus. And in doing so, as Paul calls us, as God's word calls us to something that is completely countercultural here, he actually begins to use our families in a beautiful picture to the world. In fact, you could say if you zoom out, that the family structure that's being laid out here is actually a parable of sorts for how the world is supposed to look in and see Jesus. He makes this parallel very clear in Ephesians 5. It's implicit here. Is that the way that we relate to one another in our families shows the world who Jesus is. It shows them what a real husband is, what a real bride is church is. It shows them what a real father and a real child is. It shows them what a real master and a real servant is. Maybe you've heard me tell the story before of the, the Chicago River. It's really one of my, one of the most intriguing stories to me is that around the turn of the century, one of the most incredible kind of engineering marvels, uh, honestly, in the modern world happened. Chicago was a really nasty place to live right before 1900. There was disease everywhere, there was trash everywhere, and um, there was sickness everywhere, and a lot of that came because they dumped all of their sewage, all of their junk, all of their trash into the Chicago River, and the Chicago River flowed into Lake Michigan. Well, guess where they also decided to get their drinking water from? You got it, Lake Michigan. That was kind of a problem to be dumping all of your waste into the same place that you're going to try to get your drinking water from. And so there were huge cholera outbreaks. There were people dying right and left because they were drinking sewage, literally. And then around 1900, a couple of brilliant engineers came up with this idea that kind of stood everything on its head. They said, this is what we should do. We should, one, raise the city about 10 feet and install some sewers underneath which they did, unbelievably. And the second thing we should do is we should change the direction of the Chicago River so that it flows into the Mississippi River rather than into Lake Michigan where we get our drinking water. And they did it. They reversed the flow of the river. It's an amazing engineering feat. And now, I mean, after that, it was almost immediate. The health of the city was almost immediately better. 
But I think it's a great picture for us, too, of what Jesus is doing in the world. Is he is reversing the flow of the curse. He is reversing the effects of the curse in the world. And as the world looks around, they are going to look at something that looks very odd to them. It's going to look like it's actually moving backward. It's going to look like it's moving against the normal flow of culture, and it's going to be very strange. But friends, this is exactly what God has called his people to do. As families, as workers, as friends, as a church, to be on display for the world what a completely countercultural gospel-centered movement looks like. So that the world around us can look and at first they say, man, that's backwards, something's wrong here. But the second thing they'll realize is, wow, I actually see something I've never seen before. We actually see a, a, a husband who would lay down his life for his bride in such a way that is uncomprehensible, such a way even that he would lay it down even to death. We see a master who would love his servants so much that he would get down on his knees and wash their feet and then go and die a sacrificial death for them. We see a father who would love his children so much that he would go to the most, to the utter extremes to show them his love. And we see a church who willingly and lovingly submits to that loving husband. We see a church who willingly and lovingly obeys that master. We see a church who lovingly and willingly wants to follow and wants to work with gusto and with all their hearts for their loving Lord and Savior. That is what the world sees when they see our families at work. That is what the world sees when they look into the church. They see a completely countercultural message. They see Jesus working in our hearts to do something amazing. Let's pray that they see that even in us today. Pray with me now. Father, how great even after studying this passage that we get to call you Father. A Father who loves his children. A Father who leads his children, who cares for us deeply. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to yourself, for working in us. Lord, thank you for even giving us the particular roles that we, that we have in our lives. Lord, in each place where we find ourselves, Lord, show us what it means to be able to humbly lay down our desires for yours, to work for you, to do all things in your name. I pray, Lord, even as you send us out, that you will even use that to show the world your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.